Well, amen. It's good to see you guys this morning. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you guys want to turn to chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, we're going to actually cover the entirety of this chapter this morning. So uh, buckle up. We're going to cover some ground. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, as you guys turn there, let me just kind of announce again uh, just to you guys. In a couple weeks, we have our college retreat coming up. And so uh, we want to get it squarely in front of you guys and love for you guys to be a part and to come and be a part of that weekend. Uh, we, every year we go out to Frontier Camp, which is just an awesome campsite. Great activities. We actually have a lot of our leaders who uh, serve out there in the summer, and uh, it is just a great facility. The staff there is awesome, and so it is probably one of the sweetest and richest times we have uh, as a college staff and as a college ministry all fall, and we'd love to have you guys there. I know it's hard to kind of carve out a whole weekend from studies, but uh, I, I guarantee you guys, if you guys can be a part of it, it will be well worth your while. It's a great chance to also just connect with other students and kind of feel more a part of kind of this college ministry and this church, and so we'd love for you guys to be a part of that. Again, it's in two weeks. You guys can sign up immediately after the service. It's 80 bucks. Again, if the financial angle is an issue, we'd love for it not to be an issue, and so scholarships are available. Just come talk to us, but we'd love for you guys to be there Friday night to Sunday morning. It's just a great week. And so we'll get you guys back in time to study all you can on that Sunday afternoon. But uh, put it on your calendars. We'd love for you guys to be there. All right, Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter, but just to start off, verses 1 to 6. Author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks that you are our king that you have all authority, uh, that you have all power, you have all dominion, and we thank you that you received that even after your death, that even after you died and you resurrected and you ascended, you went to the right hand of the Father on high. And so we worship one who was crucified, but we worship one who was resurrected, who has the power over death, who overcame death, who overcame sin uh, on our behalf, and and who took that penalty and, and overcame it so as to rise and to sit at the right hand of the Father. So Father, we give you thanks this morning. We ask uh, in the midst of your promise where two or more are gathered in your name, so you will be. And Father, I ask just that your spirit would be here in a unique way, uh, that you would move in ways beyond our anticipation. And Lord, that you would just do something this morning uh, in a rich way, um, that you'd open our eyes, that you'd soften our hearts, and that you'd move in, in a real powerful way this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right, so well, uh, even for you guys who may not be sports fans, it would have been almost impossible to miss last summer uh, an event that occurred that really reshaped much of the basketball world. Uh, LeBron James came out with a one-hour-long TV special, which he announced his, uh, as the title of the show was called, His Decision, all right? So LeBron James, uh, who played about seven years for the Cleveland Cavaliers, announced that for the first time ever he was leaving the Cavaliers and was going to be playing for a new team, the Miami Heat. He's going to be joining a couple uh, buddies. See, uh, there might be some Cavs fans in here. He's going to be joining a couple buddies for the Miami Heat, and he's going to be playing for a new team, a team that he believed that he had the best chance to win a championship with. Uh, Later that evening, and actually the next morning, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers wrote this on their website. He said this. As you know now, he said, Dear Cleveland, all of Northeast Ohio and Cleveland Cavaliers supporters, wherever you may be. As you now know, our former hero who was grew up in the very region that he deserted this evening is no longer a Cleveland Cavalier. This is announced with a several-day narcissistic self-promotional buildup culminating with a national TV special of his decision, unlike anything ever witnessed in the history of sports and probably the history of entertainment. 
Clearly, this is bitterly disappointing to all of us. The good news is that the ownership team and the rest of the hardworking, loyal, and driven staff over here at your hometown Cavaliers have not betrayed you, nor never will betray you. You simply don't deserve this kind of cowardly betrayal. You've given so much and deserve so much more. This shocking act of disloyalty from our homegrown chosen one sends the exact opposite lesson of what we would want our children to learn and who we would want them to grow up to be. And so we who as Cavs fans and the owner as he wrote that day was uh, really in many ways culminating and capturing a lot of the sentiment of much of Cleveland at the time and much of the state of Ohio. They felt utterly betrayed and utterly sold out. Ultimately, uh, LeBron and his TV special, as he kind of talked through his decision, a lot of it for him was not about money. He went to a team where he made less money. Uh, for him, a lot of it, as he communicated, was a lot about uh, wanting to play basketball with some friends. But even more so is, for him, I think, a, a chance that he believed he had the best chance to win an NBA championship in his future. Ultimately, as you looked at LeBron James's decision that for many of us maybe uh, we, we missed out on or we didn't hear the explanation of, but for many, as they looked upon it, it was simply this. It, it was a decision based on a lack of belief in the Cleveland Cavaliers. However you wanted to write it, however you wanted to spin it, ultimately LeBron James didn't believe that the Cleveland Cavaliers could help him win an NBA championship. And so he deserted that team and that state that had helped him grow and helped him develop as a basketball player into a place where he was idolized and worshipped. He turned his back and he went down south to South Beach, Miami. Now why did he do it? And what does it tell you about the sports scene and I think much about our culture today? I think as I look at that decision and as I look at now for much of sports and what free agency has become, you and I now live in a day and a culture that does not value faithfulness. <laughs> you and I live in a culture and a day and time that we do not value or put a high price tag on loyalty. It's not just LeBron James, the entire sports world from employee to athlete, from athlete back to employer, does not value nor is the norm now faithfulness and loyalty. And it's not just in athletics, even for you and I, even in the day that we've come up in, as we look at those that, that are employed by a company and a business and the, and the length of time that they stay with that business, in our parent generation, our parents often went to a job and stayed at that job and stayed in that corporation for the entirety of their career. Every year that comes by, that window of how long you and I take a job and stay in that job continues to shorten and shorten and shorten. Uh, and I think in large measure, because you and I, as corporations to employees, and then even as employees to corporations, no longer value faithfulness or loyalty. You don't just see it in business, you don't just see it in sports, but you also see it even in marriage. And no longer do you and I live in a day and time in which we get married and stick with our spouse for a lifetime. Loyalty and faithfulness within marriage is no longer the norm, nor is it any more valued or appreciated. You and I live in a day and time where essentially faithfulness is not sexy. Faithfulness is not approved. It is not valued. It is forsaken at the cheapest cost for whatever you and I can gain. So as we look at this passage this morning, I think it's going to be all about faithfulness. You and I are going to be going cross-current in a culture that values flashiness over faithfulness. A culture that values having a blast over something that's going to last. A culture that values something that's going to sizzle even if it doesn't have any substance whatsoever. You and I live in a day and time in which the values of faithfulness are so overlooked that it is going to land a critical blow to much of what spirituality and our spiritual life is to be all about. And really, as we look at chapter 3 this morning, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to call you and I to faithfulness. And yet for you and I, faithfulness seems flat out boring. <laughs> Faithfulness doesn't grab our attention. It is not what we write stories about of a man who does a job for an entire lifetime or a man who walks with the Lord for a lifetime. That's not what grabs our culture's attention. 
And so this morning we're going to kind of go cross-cultural, if you will, counter-cultural, if you will, and we're going to look at a topic and a value that's something that I want to resurrect and reconstruct for us, all right? Chapter 3, verses 1, 1 to 6. Really, what we're going to see as we kind of jump in this morning is that Jesus Christ, in a sense, is our definitional standard of faithfulness. If you want to know what faithfulness looks like, you and I walk and we look at Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, again, is the theme of this book. It's the theme of the last song we sang, that Jesus is supreme. He is the highest authority. He is over all. And so the writer of Hebrews, again, recenters us back on Jesus Christ. But as he recenters us on Jesus Christ, he's going to move the argument of the book in a whole different direction. And notice verse 2, he says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also in all Moses' house. Notice as we look at verse 2, the writer of Hebrews is moving the argument of the book. Chapters 1 and 2 was all about Jesus stacked up against the angels. And now we're going away from the angels. We're going to stack Jesus up against the greatest legacy, the greatest human man they would have thought of. For everyone who had a, a Jewish background, they would have immediately thought the greatest example they could ever live up to was Moses. Moses was the, uh, you know, in a sense, the, the excellence. He was the highest bar that you, you could jump to. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to stack Jesus up against Moses. And he's going to stack him not just up against this greatest human hero that he would have had, but he's going to stack him up with regard to one particular area to compare. Notice verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built on someone, but the builder of all things is, is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for testimony of those things which should be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. As the writer of Hebrews is going to compare Jesus to Moses, the area of comparison that they're going to drive to is this area of faithfulness. And notice what faithfulness for Jesus got him. Verse 3, Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Ultimately, even as this passage begins, it's going to go diametrically opposed to what you and I typically think of faithfulness. We sang even this morning as we ended that Jesus overcame, and because he overcame, because he was faithful even to the point of death, he gets a name that no one else gets. He's crowned with glory and honor as a resurrected and ascended king who sits at the right hand of the Father. You and I see in Jesus an example of faithfulness, and what it receives him and what it gets him is so contrary to what you and I often think of faithfulness. A man who just buries his head and does his job for a lifetime and is not noticed, that does not seem that attractive, that winsome, that captivating. We like flash and not faithfulness. And what we see in Jesus, especially in his first coming, is one who came with no flash, but he came with entirety of faithfulness. And because of that, he's going to get glory. And all of a sudden, we begin to see this passage being unfolded. It's going to show us that faithfulness gets glory, not anything else. Faithfulness gets you a legacy of glory. And that's diametrically opposed to how you and I live and what you and I want to pursue so often. In fact, as we're going to walk through this, he's going to end in verse 6 with this kind of what is the second warning of the book. We looked at the first warning of the book a couple weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 2. But really here in verse 6, and then the rest of chapter 3 is going to be the second warning of the book. A warning to a people who were under persecution. A warning to a people who were thinking about turning their back on Jesus Christ. And the kind of betrayal that would have made LeBron James just pale in comparison. That if they had turned their back on Jesus Christ, it was going to have catastrophic consequences. And so he's going to call them here to be faithful to remain uh, devoted and consistent as they walk with Jesus Christ. He says, verse 6, Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We're going to, look to come back to that here in, in a little while and look at what exactly is, is the writer of Hebrews trying to say here. But what you're going to see is that the writer's concern is that they may not remain faithful. They may not maintain their hope and, and their steadiness all the way to the end. So he's going to call them to that. And really what he's going to do is we kind of, as he calls them to that is he's going to take them to an example that they would have known. 
For this audience who had a Jewish background, he's going to quote in verses 7 and 11 to Psalm 95 that was referencing two historical moments in the life of Israel. Two historical moments that showed that the nation of Israel was not faithful. In fact, the leader of that nation at the time, the greatest human hero they had, wasn't perfectly faithful either, Moses. And the results for the nation of Israel and the results for Moses were an exclusion from something that we'll look at in a minute that had consequences for the lack of faithfulness. But I think what's really significant as the writer of Hebrews is going to walk us through Psalm 95 and the way he's going to tie it all together is that we're going to get a picture of how in the world do you and I go from devoted and faithful to faithless. How in the world do you and I start really well walking with the Lord, pursuing Him righteously, pursuing Him fervently, and then yet somehow land in a place later on in life where we're no longer walking with Him? What's the process? How do we get there? Really, as we kind of look at verses 7 and 11, we're going to get a great picture of that process. And in a sense, as we see faithfulness turn into disease, and we see some symptoms of that disease. Really, verse 6, we're going to see that the first step for how that disease begins is that hope is lost. Verse 6, he says, Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. How do you and I go from faithful and devoted to Jesus to faithless and betraying Him and turning our back on Him? How in the world does anyone do that? I think verse 6 is going to tell us that where it begins is the very beginning point, stage one of that process is that you and I lose hope in the future of what God is going to do. That when you and I lose hope in the future of what God is going to do, all of a sudden a process begins and a stage gets set and a foundation gets laid that we can begin to move toward faithlessness. In fact, that's why Moltman says this. The eschatological, big word, fancy word for what we believe about the future, all right? What you and I believe about the future is not one element of Christianity. It is, in fact, the medium of Christianity as such, the key in which everything in it is set, the glow that suffuses everything here in the dawn of an expected new day. The confidence that you and I have in the future is absolutely vital to how you and I live. What you believe that God will do in the future has everything to do with who you are and how you walk and what you pursue in this day. That new day, that expectation that's coming in the future shapes everything about how you and I see our life, ourselves, and our future. And as that day and as that confidence gets eroded and as it begins to fade and it gets jeopardized and undermined, a process begins in which you and I can begin to move from faithfulness to faithlessness because our hope is huge. For the audience of Hebrews, I think for many of them as they were experiencing persecution, we know from later in the book that their possessions were being taken and a day was beginning to dawn in which their very lives were about to be at stake. Persecution was rising, the heat was getting higher, and all of a sudden the pressure was really escalating. And as they looked in a sense at their immediate future, they were beginning to really wilt under that pressure. And for many in that day and time, they were beginning to wonder in a sense, how confident am I really in who God is and what God is going to do? And under that pressure, their hope began to be undermined and they began to wilt a bit. And a process began that was really similar and they would have identified it with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Psalm 95 is going to take them to two events in their Old Testament that they would have readily recognized. There's two events at two places. One was known as Meribah and one was known as Kedesh Barnea. As we look at Psalm 95, what we're going to see in these two different places is that at Meribah, they're going to be, uh, having left Egypt, they're going to be captivated and taken out of that slavery situation. They're going to be brought in the wilderness. And as they wander in the wilderness, they're going to find a spot in time that they're not going to have any food or water. They're going to begin to cry out. They're going to begin to lose hope that God is going to fulfill what he promised them to do because they have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. In fact, as you continue on, what you're going to notice for an audience of Hebrews and even for them here is that ultimately what's beginning to happen is their hope is undermined is that their present obstacles that are visible are beginning to dominate their belief more so than what they believed about the invisible character of God and the invisible hand of God. That ultimately the obstacles that were right in front of them were beginning to dominate their attention and their faith and their belief and their confidence in God. 
And as their confidence began to be undermined, a process began in which their heart was going to be harder than next. Look at verse 7 and 8. Therefore, it says, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Stage two really for them was that not just that they lost hope, but that their heart became hardened. Not only were they lessening in their confidence of what God was going to do in the future, but as they listened to him today, as they listened to him at a point in time, they began to be hardened in their expectation and their response to the Lord. As they move from faithfulness to faithlessness, the first step is they lose hope. The second step is their heart is hardened. What does it look like to be and to have a hardened heart? How do you know if your heart is hardened? First step is you lose hope. The second step is what we're going to see, and I'm going to ask you guys to keep your finger here in Hebrews, but I'm going to take you guys all the way back to Numbers 14. If you guys keep your finger here, I'm going to take you guys all the way back to where this process uh, began to unroll for them. Numbers 14, what we find is uh, as they've been wandering in the wilderness, they're going to come upon on the edge of the land that they're supposed to enter into, and they're going to send scouts out. And I want you guys to notice the process and notice what happens as they begin to lose hope. Notice what happens next. Numbers 13, verse 30. If you guys uh, want to listen, uh, or you can turn there and read it along with me. Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of the promised land, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, the inhabitants of the land who are already there. For they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our sight, and so were we in their sight. And really, the end of chapter 13 shows you they're losing confidence in what God has promised he's going to do in the future. And notice the next result of it, chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that we could fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, and we will not, it will not be better for us to return to Egypt. Notice, nation of Israel, they lose hope, and then their heart becomes hardened, and they just begin to grumble and complain and throw a little two-year-old temper tantrum, all right? And they get dramatic, they begin to cry, they begin to grumble and complain, and they're just coming absolutely undone. Even before this, I want to show you guys another example of what happens, another event that's being quoted in Psalm 95 that the writer of Hebrews is referring to. Flip to Exodus chapter 17 real quick. Exodus 17, I'm going to read you guys three verses at the top of 17. But as you guys turn there, the real fascinating thing about Exodus 17 is we're going to find not just that the nation of Israel grumbles and complains as their heart is hardened, but they're going to do something else. And what's really fascinating about Exodus 17 is it comes one chapter after God just did something miraculous. It wasn't just that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt in a miraculous way through a Red Sea as he defeated the army of the Egyptians. But even as they land in the wilderness, they're going to land in a place where they're going to have no food to eat. And they're going to begin to grumble and complain and cry and, and get stressed that God is not going to sur- help them survive. And then God magically and supernaturally provides them manna from heaven, all right? They wake up every morning, there's a fine dust on the ground. They pick it up, they eat it, they're, they're satisfied. They get quail as well. They're, getting, they're eating like kings, all right? And a chapter later, in chapter 17, they're going to leave that place and they're going to be on the road. And notice what happens one chapter after God just did something miraculous. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? (laughs) 
They were hungry in chapter 16 and God provided. They get thirsty in chapter 17 and they haven't learned the lesson in chapter 16, which is God will provide. God draw them out of Egypt and he didn't draw them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. And they should have learned that in chapter 16. They don't learn that and they get thirsty and then they cry and they have another temper tantrum and they lose all hope, all right? They've lost hope. They've lost confidence in the character and what God is going to do in the future. And they begin to grumble and complain. And what I really want you guys to see in 17 is not just that they grumble and they complain. But the second stage of what you really see as someone's heart becomes hardened to the Lord is not just that they grumble and complain in the present, but they also lose gratitude for what God has done in the past. How do you know if you're someone who has a hardened heart at a time? You know it as you listen to the Lord and yet don't respond to Him. As you grumble and complain about the circumstances of your present day life situation and as you lose gratitude for what He's already done in the past. The nation of Israel lands in that place. They lose confidence in the future of what God is going to do, and they lose their satisfaction in the present. And in that spot in time, it happens really quick. They begin to just completely unravel. I got to go this past uh, day, or yesterday we were out in Dallas, got to see uh, the Aggies play Arkansas, which we all know didn't really lead to the result we wanted. But I had my first experience in Cowboy Stadium, which, as you guys know, I'm a huge Cowboys fan, was my personal mecca, all right? It was just an amazing experience, all right? Uh, I didn't know whether to watch the game or to watch the, the gigantic HD TV that's the size of three houses, all right? I mean, it was just huge. It was just phenomenal. It was just blown away there, all right? And what was fascinating in walking through that stadium and having that, that experience, and even though the game didn't go like I wanted it to, by about 10 minutes after the game being over, 10 minutes after being blown away by the big TV, when we couldn't find a cab that they told us we could find, and we had to begin to walk all the way back to the hotel. All hope got lost really quick, and my present satisfaction went out the window, all right? I began to grumble. I began to complain. I began to lose complete gratitude for what was the amazing HD TV in front of me, all right? Uh, that all felt like a whole year away from me, all right? It felt long ago. And for you and I, as we lose confidence in the future and as we lose satisfaction in the present, this process begins to go really quickly. It happened one chapter later after the manna for Israel. It happened about 10 minutes after an amazing football game watching experience that didn't exactly go the way I wanted it, but it was still awesome, all right? And and for the nation of Israel, what you're going to notice is there's a stage three next. The next thing that happens when they lose confidence in the future and they lose satisfaction in the present, the next thing they do is they begin to grumble at the Lord and question their own authority. If you'll notice back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 9, notice they say next, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Notice the next thing that happens is that they begin to question the authority over them. And particularly and ultimately they're questioning God himself, his character, his promises, his capabilities. You know, we sang this morning that we know two things about the Lord, that, that he loves us and that he's strong. And yet in the midst of trials that they begin to question and undermine our hope, the two things that we begin not to believe anymore is that he loves us, that he cares, and that he's strong and that he's able to stop something. That in the midst of the trials, in the midst of difficulties, those things begin to get eroded. And you'll notice that every move from faithfulness to faithlessness is not about action. It's not about some physical desire, but it's always a disbelief in the character and the promises of God. When you and I begin to move in that process, we begin to stop. We stop believing in what God can do and what He will do and who He is. What you're going to notice next, that's why the next stage in this is that they begin to question God Himself. Forget the middleman; they go straight to God. And, and so, in Psalm 95, they say they question God. As you look back at Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, we find that right after they're grumbling, complaining, the next thing they do is they basically try to vote Moses out of leadership. All right, uh, one of them will say, one of the passages will say that they want to, uh, Moses fears that he's about to get stoned. Uh, try being in a leadership uh, in a position that you're about to get killed. Right? Or imagine the next thing they say is they, in uh, Numbers 14, they actually say, "Hey, we want to vote you and, and appoint a leader that can actually save our lives." All right, and so they want to throw Moses out. 
And not just that they want to throw Moses out, but they want to throw the leadership that Moses represents, which is God himself. The next step that you and I go to when our hearts are hardened and we've lost hope is that we begin to question God himself. I think the really interesting thing will be this November within the next set of elections that come that aren't presidential elections, but are elections for the House and the Senate will be, and I'm not trying to be political here, but the question will be, as, as analysts are watching, and as will Republicans unseat Democrats from control of the House and the Senate? And what happens in those elections, I'd argue, has nothing to do necessarily with the actual representatives themselves that are in the House and the Senate, but has everything to do with what the nation thinks about President Obama. If Republicans displace Democrats in the House and the Senate, what it's saying to you is this. No longer does America as a nation have confidence in where Obama is taking this nation, and no longer are they presently satisfied. If Democrats maintain control, then we realize that they're not that frustrated, and they're actually quite satisfied in the present. But if Republicans displace those Democrats and they gain control of the House and the Senate, what you see is what happens spiritually and it happens politically. When you and I lose hope in the future and we lose satisfaction in the present, the next thing that we do is we kick our leadership out. That's exactly what may be happening. That's exactly what we're going to be looking at and analysts will be watching in November elections. But the difference between Obama and God is God's not running a democracy, right? God's not getting voted out, right? So I would never compare God to someone that's human or ever in my life, Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones. But uh, if you guys were here for that sermon, but uh, as you kind of watch, when you and I rebel against God, when you and I lose faith in God and our hearts are hardened and our hope is lost, the reality is since God's not running a democracy, the next stage in this process as we move from faithfulness to faithlessness is that you and I experience discipline. You and I experience discipline when we can begin to move through this process. When we no longer trust God and His character and His promises, and we begin to move to a place and to a time where we begin to rebel against His authority and question Him and want to vote Him out, so to speak, and we begin to live our lives in a way that's contrary to what He's called us to and contrary to what He's promised us is going to come in the future, the result of that is discipline. Notice verses 10 to 11. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and they said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Notice the first aspect of discipline is that God is angered. And he can be angered even with his own people. God can be angered even with his own people when we begin to move from faithfulness to faithlessness. And not only that he's angered, but he's going to begin to discipline us and remove privileges. Notice he says in verse 11, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We're going to look next week at chapter 4. We're going to spend the whole morning discussing and wrestling with what is the rest God is communicating right here. Kind of give you guys a little bit of a preview, ultimately, what I think and how this was uh, fulfilled in that generation for that uh, historical period of time was that the nation of Israel and that generation that disbelieved God and His promises, they did not get to see the fulfillment of God's promises that the nation of Israel was brought into land. In fact, if you look at verses 18 and 19, 17 and 19, he says, With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to, to those who were disobedient? To those who rebelled against the authority of God, God became angry and God did not allow them to see and experience in their lifetime the fulfillment of his promises. That discipline has nothing to do with heaven and hell. <laughs> that discipline has nothing to do with proving or undermining the relationship someone has with Jesus Christ. We say this every, every week and we say it again and I'll say it again this morning that you and I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ absolutely freely. You and I can do nothing to merit the pleasure and the approval of God. And you know, that's why Jesus Christ died on a cross so he took the penalty of our sins so that we could be brought into a relationship with him. And as we brought, brought into a relationship with him where we've experienced the grace of God, where he gives us what we do not and cannot merit, it's a grace that is abusable. <laughs> even though we've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we do not live perfectly even in a relationship with him. 
There's a chance that we as the people of God can anger him and walk contrary to what he'd call you and I to. The question is, as he disciplines us, what does that discipline look like? It looks a lot like what a parent does, all right? So for us, our little girl who's starting to grab and able to actually show some personality and actually able to resist us now, knowingly, we're actually realizing we're going to have to begin to actually discipline this sweet little innocent child who's not so innocent anymore, all right? So uh, we're eating at, at breakfast at dinner, and right beside her where she eats, there's a nice uh, East Asian scroll that's really pretty. That's one of our favorites that we got from East Asia. It's right beside her, and she'll take her grubby little paws, and she'll try to grab that thing, all right? And she'll grab it, and we'll tell her no touch. And she actually does understand that. So she lets go, and then she waits, and she grabs again. And we say, no touch. And then she lets go, and then she looks at us again, and she grabs again, all right? So she's clearly defying us, all right? Now, what does my discipline look like, all right? At least with a one-year-old, I'm not getting angry, okay? I am getting a bit frustrated at times, okay? Uh, But my discipline, though, isn't removal from the family, all right? I don't say, hey... You know, I'm sorry, you disobeyed, good luck with life, right? And kick her out, right? That's not, that's not what discipline looks like. So instead, there's usually removal of privileges, all right? Now, for a one-year-old, it doesn't look so, so easy. I would remove certain toys, I don't know. She doesn't really get it, right? But as you and I get older, parents' ability to discipline gets even better. Why? Because the privileges they can remove have all the more leverage on us, right? So when you lost your bike as a sixth grader, not a big deal. But when you lose your car as a 16-year-old, you ship into shape, don't you? Because that leverage, right, that removal of privilege, the removal of, of all that your parents want for you actually does help restrain you, okay? God is going to discipline the nation of Israel, and what he's trying to do is remove from them privileges of what he ultimately wants them to have, though. It pains him, and it's not what he intended. And so as they disobey, as they rebel, ultimately what they're going to miss out on is seeing and experiencing the fulfillment of all of God's promises in their life. Ultimately, as we walk through these Hebrew uh, warnings passages, there's several different schools of thought on these. But ultimately, what I want you guys to see over and over again is that ultimately that their disobedience does not jeopardize their relationship with God. Their disobedience jeopardizes what God can do and wants to do in their life. And ultimately, you and I get a quick solution in verses 12 and 13 in which we find the way that you and I maintain faithfulness is that you and I have to be careful. Carefulness helps us maintain and a direction and a path to pursue Jesus Christ and to maintain devotion to Him over a lifetime. Moses is going to fail and fall short, and because of that, he and his generation don't get to enter into the promised land, and they don't get to see all that God wanted to do with that generation because they didn't pursue and they didn't value faithfulness, and they fell short. So the great question for you and I is, how do we maintain faithfulness? Really, verses 12 to 13 kind of give us the solution. And because of the sake of time, I'm going to kind of fly through these real quick. But ultimately, he's going to call us, you and I, to be careful. And be careful of two things. One, he says in 12, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Notice that what you and I are to be careful for is that you and I are to look out for the community at large. Your spiritual life is not just your responsibility. Your responsibility and what you've been called to is to look out for not just yourself, but for the body of Christ at large. Uh, honestly, when I was a college roommate, I just thought, if I wash my dishes and that guy washes his dishes, our kitchen will be good. All right? That's not how spiritual life works. You're not called just to watch, wash your own spiritual dishes. You're called to wash yours and be looking out for everybody else. You're called to interact with, encourage, and, and look out for the entire body. And so your call is to each other. Your call is to join and jump into community so that you can encourage, love, and watch out for one another. It's not just that you and I are to watch out for one another, but you and I are to watch out for sin. Sin will give us not what it promises us. Sin will come with an offer and a promise, but what it delivers is so contrary to what it promised, which is why he says in verse 13, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
The way that you and I move from faithfulness to faithlessness is, is a process in which we lose hope, our heart becomes hardened, and we question the authority of God. And the way that we uh, work against that is that you and I move into community, we live life with one another, and we watch out for what sin is and how it is tempting to try to deceive us. And ultimately, because my hope for you guys is that you guys, having begun fervently in college walking with the Lord, will walk with the Lord for a lifetime. You guys will know the Lord, that you guys will continue to walk with Him, and yet in the midst of life, in the midst of the tragedies and the difficulties that you guys inevitably will hit, the question is, will you guys maintain confidence in the purpose and the promises and the person of God? And ultimately, my hope for you guys, as you guys begin to think through college and think through as you leave college, is that as you look at your spiritual life, as you look at your life, my hope for you guys is that your value will be faithfulness, not flashiness. Ultimately, I think our church personally here and our church at large in America have all kinds of stories of those who were flashy and gifted and yet were not faithful. They were flashy and they flamed out. And ultimately, I hope for you guys, no matter who you are, no matter what the Lord is going to want to do with your life, my hope for you guys is that you guys will pursue faithfulness because the kind of impact the Lord can use at you as you walk faithfully for a lifetime is so much greater than someone who can be flashy and yet flame out. Faithfulness is a value that our culture does not have, but it's a value that I think God calls us to because it's that thing that brings us glory personally, and it's that thing that involves us in all that God wants to do. We're going to run a little late here, but we have a couple special guests I really want to introduce you guys to this morning. John, if you guys want to come up. I have a couple guests from East Asia, and what I love about these guests personally and what I loved about our time in East Asia was that it's a culture and it's a church that values faithfulness over flashiness. In a culture, in a day and time, in a place where walking with the Lord comes at a much greater cost than it does here, flashiness often isn't even an option. And so it's a people, it's a culture, it's a church that is valuing faithfulness above all else. And because of that, I want you guys to kind of hear a little bit of what the Lord's doing in East Asia and even some of the opportunities you guys to have to come and be involved, and then I'll, I'll pray us out. A lot of you guys may know this, but we have uh, three different missions partnership locations in the world that we go to. Every summer we send the students and send teams from Grace there, and then through the year we also send uh, teams that stay there for the whole year. And so one wanted you guys, we had some staff from our East Asia partnership here, and wanted you guys to get to meet them. Honestly, for me, one of the things I love about East Asia was not just a responsiveness to the gospel amongst that people, amongst that nation, but also a sense that the church has there of carrying the gospel out uh, back towards Jerusalem, and actually, which is right through the 1040 window, which is where a lot of the Muslim part of the world is. It's just really cool to see the East Asian church is taking the gospel into places where American missionaries can't be, and they're taking that call, and they're moving the gospel through the bordering countries, which a lot of which is Muslim parts of the world where we are having a harder, harder time being. And so I just wanted you guys to meet that staff. I wanted you guys to have a chance to hear from them. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll end this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, for what you're doing, particularly in East Asia, for those that are responding to the gospel, for those that are even responding not just in belief, but responding and carrying that gospel message uh, to the farthest places of the world, Lord. I pray that you would continue to call men and women from there. And I pray, Father, I pray that you continue to call some of us, Lord. I pray even this summer as we approach and as we talk even about missions in a few weeks, Lord, I pray that you would challenge some of us. I pray that you would convict and call and, and lead some of us to stepping overseas, even this summer maybe, uh, to serve you for about five weeks. And for those of us who may be even graduating, Lord, I pray that you would even expand our availability to you to go, not maybe not just for five weeks, but even to go for a whole year. Lord, I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would cause us to be faithful to your call, no matter the cost, no matter what it may undermine of our future and where we're headed and what you are wanting to do with our lives. Lord, I pray that we could be participators with you in what you're doing and how you're moving your kingdom across the world, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys have a great uh, rest of your day, weekend, and we'll see you guys next week.